Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. From a musical perspective, film scoring as we know it wouldn't exist without opera and the work of a fascinating and controversial genius, Richard Wagner. This is The Soundtrack Show. then you are a fan of opera. Yes, you have loved opera for years and maybe didn't even know it. Hello and welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is all about the first Lord of the Ring, opera composer Richard or Richard Wagner and how his composition and storytelling style has had a very direct influence on film scores that we know and love. But first, we need to talk briefly about opera in general. What, you might be asking, what am I thinking? Opera, what a bore. Grandiose singing about who knows what. So overblown, so out of touch, so not interested. Well, Like I said in my episode about Max Steiner, context is everything. Composer and music historian Dr. Robert Greenberg has said that opera is the single most important musical invention in the history of Western music. Wow, that's quite a statement. And if that's the case, then why aren't we all flocking to the opera houses still? Well, I would argue that we still are. But today... They're more commonly called movies. They're called musicals. They're called TV shows, video games, or commercials that are set to music from beginning to end. As I said, when the soundtrack show started in the very first episode, we are bombarded with music every day. We barely ever experience any story, any narrative, any art with visual motion without the presence of music. Opera and its historical significance, its artistic influence, is why we have this musical tradition in our entertainment. So, why don't we still listen to opera then? In the biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, actor Mike Myers plays EMI executive Ray Foster, who negatively reacts to the idea of the operatic nature of Queen's, at the time, new music off their 1975 album, A Night at the Opera. When listening to Bohemian Rhapsody, the song, he says to the band, and I'm paraphrasing here, nobody likes opera. No one will ever play the band Queen. Well, boy, was he wrong. Maybe Freddie Mercury knew something that nobody else seemed to know, which is what I'm going to state now. I would argue that everybody likes opera. Everyone. Maybe sometimes, though, we just don't realize it. Why? 
Well, first of all, the cost of entry to opera is admittedly high when it comes to appreciating opera as we historically know it. For starters, if you're listening to this podcast, none of us, or at least maybe just a very few of us, speak Italian, German, Russian, or French. Well, that right away is going to make it challenging. It's hard to appreciate opera if you can't follow the plot. Second, it's very long by today's standards. Many operas are three to four hours in length. Well, so is Avengers Endgame. Third, that kind of vocal performance that opera singers gave is just not as fashionable as R&B or rock vocal performances are today. And fourth, this is a big one. We're sorely lacking context for why operas were so cutting edge when they debuted. So, let's imagine for a moment that we live in 19th century Italy, which at the time, like Germany, was not a unified country, but a series of separate states in the Italian peninsula. And along comes a new opera by, let's say, Italian composer Giuseppe Verdi, who, for our knowledge, lived and composed at the same time as Wagner, though the two men never met. And we know that Verdi's new opera is going to be performed in Milan. Oh man, Milan. Well, that's a hundred miles from where we live, but we simply must go. So let's save our money and make the pilgrimage to Milan. I hear the neighbors are going. They saw Verdi's last opera and haven't stopped talking about it. Okay, so let's go. Well, we don't know if we can get tickets, but let's go on the off chance that we'll get a seat. Let's just make the journey. And it's not like they're hopping in a car. Now imagine we do make it to Milan. We do get seats to the opera. Imagine the spectacle that would await us. For Europeans in the 18th and 19th centuries, seeing an opera was like traveling to Disney World. You were going to see that thing that everyone was talking about. A musical or dramatic work that was shaping the ideals and cultural identities of people. You were also seeing the absolute best of every artistic discipline. The latest and greatest in groundbreaking music, in storytelling, costume, Set design. Oh, and I hear they're using that new electric light now. Wow, we have to go! And not to mention that this was before audio recordings, music recordings, existed at all. So the only way to even hear the sounds that we so badly take for granted in our modern world was to travel a long distance in order to hear them. A full symphony orchestra with some of the greatest vocal performances of all time simply floored audiences every time they heard them. And that was the only time that they could hear them. And we haven't even talked about the skill of the musicians and the singers. Opera singers were rock stars back in the day, as were opera composers. But the singers especially were demonstrating the peak of human, physical, and artistic ability at the time. They defied what people thought was possible. And in the same way that local sports teams do now, an incredible performance by a singer would fill the locals with tremendous pride and a swell of patriotism. 
I could go on and on about great musical moments in opera that give me absolute chills, but I'm going to play you some unbelievable musical moments from various operas. These were kind of my gateway into loving opera, um, especially when I was in college. The first thing I'm going to play for you is the Queen of the Night aria from Mozart's The Magic Flute. Listen to how she arpeggiates those chords in that super high soprano. I mean, the amount of vocal control and pitch control and musicianship on display there is so intense. Here's another piece. This is an aria called Nessun Dorma from Puccini's opera Turandot. And this is uh, by Luciano Pavarotti. Um, this was, I think, from the Three Tenor CD, which was one of my very first opera CDs. to that huge crowd roaring as he hits those final notes. The significance and influence of opera on the musical development of the Western world simply can't be overstated. And if you're interested in finding out more, I highly recommend you check out Dr. Greenberg's audio course, How to Listen to and Understand Opera. He provides a great overview of the art form. And his other series on Mozart, Wagner, Verdi, and others are a huge influence on me and therefore on this podcast. But on with the show. Okay, David, we get the point. Opera is important. But how does that relate to my love of the score for Superman? Or Howard Shore's score for The Lord of the Rings? Well, the reason we're going to talk about Richard Wagner today is because more than any other composer, Wagner is credited with creating a style of composition that has the most direct influence on the development of film scoring especially in the early days of classic Hollywood. And it just so happens that Wagner is a fascinating and controversial study. More on that later. Here are just a few facts. Let me give you the back of the baseball card. Richard Wagner was born on May 22, 1813, and he died on February 13, 1883. He was a German composer who changed the face of opera throughout his lifetime. 
Though he only wrote about a dozen operas total, and only ten or so are really mentioned nowadays, his influence is staggering. Wagner, first of all, is the only composer that wrote his own libretti, or scripts, stories, etc., as well as writing the music. He broke down traditional opera, opera, by the way, just means work in Italian, as in a work of art. Anyway, he broke down the centuries-long form of opera and transformed it into a more fluid musical experience. You see, when opera was invented, they had to figure out how to set an entire story to music. Uh, they weren't sure how to do it, and they ended up coming up with these two different techniques. There were songs, you know, like big song moments, like hit songs that were scattered throughout the story. They would call these arias. And then there was plot recitation, or scenes, that were set to very simple chords underneath them. In the opera world, this is referred to as recitative. An example would be if I played a chord, and then... And I told you all about my breakfast, but then I needed to tell you via a second chord that I had to go to Starbucks because my wife, she loves vanilla lattes. And it was there that my wife called me and said, please get a gift card for Maria. And I said, okay, but would you like a croissant? So that is recitative. And then suddenly there would be a song all about croissants for about three minutes, an aria. Obviously, I'm being silly here, but this is literally how opera would function for hundreds of years. Here's an excerpt from Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, which many would argue is the pinnacle of artistic achievement for this form of opera, recitative and aria. Listen to how the character, Figaro, sings in recitative before breaking out into the hit song from that opera that everyone knows, even if you don't know that you know it, it's called Non Piu Andrai, or No More Gallivanting, Young Man. Here it is. Hey, Capitano, a me pure la mano. Io vo parlarti pria che tu parta. Addio, piccio cherubino, come cangio e Here's the recitative. Il tuo destino. And now here is the hit song, or the aria. So you can clearly hear two different parts there musically. This is how opera worked for hundreds of years before Wagner. By the way, we could do a whole series on the marriage of Figaro, on Mozart, and the controversial nature of this opera, speaking of fascinating history, because it was a link in the cultural chain that was the Enlightenment. The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart was based on a play by the French playwright Beaumarchais. It was banned in Vienna by Emperor Joseph II because of its anti-aristocratic themes and its celebration of the common people, us. And we could talk about how this all culminated in various revolutions throughout Europe, including the famous French Revolution, the demise of the aristocracy, and the rise of the middle class, but we'll save that for another episode. But see? Opera's cool! 
Anyway, back to Wagner. After hundreds of years of this operatic tradition that I laid out for you, Wagner thought opera was tired and lame. This was back in the 19th century. He had visions of better stories, more important masterwork, and a fluid, seamless musical experience, very much how we hear film scores today. This was all as he was starting his career. What he would come up with changed music forever, and it more closely resembles the kind of dramatic underscore we still hear in our entertainment today. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. Wagner envisioned the orchestra as having just as important a voice in storytelling as the singers. This concept is key. You see, Wagner realized the musical potential and storytelling power of the orchestra and was the first to really use it. Wagner's take on this was fascinating. Characters in stories, like people, often don't say what they mean. They aren't honest with each other. They hide their feelings. They can be treacherous. They can deceive. But the orchestra? Ah, the orchestra doesn't lie. The orchestra can tell you exactly what's going on. Wagner immediately began breaking down the barriers between recitative and aria by creating a seamless, rich, and constant musical experience. I'm going to start playing you some examples of his operas, and the callbacks to some of our most popular movies might stun you a bit. Let's start with his first masterwork, The Flying Dutchman of 1843. The Flying Dutchman is a ghost ship that is doomed to sail the seas forever. It's straight out of Pirates of the Caribbean. Or should I say, Pirates is directly influenced by the Flying Dutchman legend. Listen to how he uses the orchestra to paint a picture of the angry seas and how the music seamlessly dances around the vocal performances. Wagner's most famous music is still yet to come. In fact, I would argue that Wagner's most recognizable and most famous piece of music is one that you've heard countless times in your life. For many people, it is heard during one of the most important days of their whole life. Most people don't even realize that it has its origins in an opera that Wagner wrote in 1850 called Lohengrin. Let's take a listen. Wait for it. Wait for it. 
My friends, I give you Wagner's Wedding March from Lohengrin. gotten to the real stuff yet. The reason why we talk about Wagner at all with regard to film scoring. We haven't even gotten to that. Yes, Wagner wrote some amazing operas, which we're not done discussing. I've saved the best for last. Yes, he revolutionized the use of orchestra and opera. But since I was a kid, I've been hearing this phrase. When writing Star Wars, John Williams used a technique borrowed from Richard Wagner called a leitmotif, or motive, to describe characters. Phew, finally. Yes, that's right. While Wagner wasn't the first or last to have leitmotifs or motives or thematic material associated with character, his extensive use of leitmotifs, little melodies or themes that cue us in on characters or situations or places or even objects like swords, spears, and rings, combined with his orchestration and constant flow of music in his masterworks, this is what makes Wagner one of the most important opera composers of all time. And when film composers like Alfred Newman, Max Steiner, Eric Korngold, Miklos Rosa, Adolf Deutsch, and Franz Waxman started writing original music for film, they found that Wagner's leitmotif technique was a perfect fit for motion picture underscore. Thus, the golden era of Hollywood film music owes a tremendous debt to Wagner and his use of themes. Therefore, neoclassical scores of the 1970s to the present also owe Wagner a tremendous musical debt. To demonstrate, we're going to look at Wagner's greatest achievement. And while some of you opera purists out there might be waiting for me to play Tristan and Isolde, I must sadly skip it for time. Just know that it's one of the most influential operas of the 19th century and also heavily employs motivic leitmotif writing. Anyway, the opera that I'm going to talk about is the one ring to rule them all. No, not Tolkien's ring from The Lord of the Rings. I mean a ring that predates that one. The Ring of the Nibelung. A four-part, almost 20-hour operatic epic that Wagner wrote between 1854 and 1876. That's right. It took him 22 years. It is a story about a cursed ring of power, the gods of Valhalla, an evil dwarf, giants, mermaids, a dragon, a ring of fire, eight Valkyries, a prince, a magic helmet, and a magic sword. Not to mention infidelity, betrayal, incest, murder, robbery, trickery, a love potion, fate, and even self-immolation. There is nothing like it of its kind. It is so grand, so epic, that Wagner even had a festival theater built in the German city of Bayreuth, 
just so that people could experience it. It was bankrolled by the king of Bavaria at the time. More on that later. It was unlike anything anyone had ever dared to try and create at that time. The audacity of Wagner, the ego of Wagner, to think he could pull off something so grand. But he did it! He did it! And you know what? It is absolutely filled with leitmotifs. And it kind of has to be. For a story with so many characters that is so complex, the orchestra, through use of leitmotifs, helps us track where we are in the plot. In his essay titled Opera and Drama, Wagner referred to leitmotifs, or themes, as, quote, guides to feeling, end quote, describing how they could be used to inform the listener of a musical or dramatic subtext to the action on stage, in the same way that a Greek chorus did for the theater of ancient Greece. The Ring of the Nibelung, or in German, Der Ring des Nibelungen, is known as the Ring Cycle for short. It consists of four operas, Das Rheingold, or The Rheingold, Die Valkyrie, or The Valkyrie, Siegfried, the name of our young protagonist, and this is my favorite title, the fourth one, Gotterdammerung, or Twilight of the Gods. Most opera companies who stage this will do so over the course of a year, or maybe during a summer season. It is a massive, massive work, an incredible undertaking. Okay, so, the ring cycle. I'm going to attempt a plot summary, just so I can play you some leitmotif examples. I'm going to employ the help of musical comedian Anna Russell during some spots, just to keep it light. And to you Lord of the Rings fans, some of this might sound familiar to you. We open the first opera, the Rheingold, in the German river Rhine. That's right, in the river. Three mermaid-type creatures called Rhine maidens come out and sing about their precious and beautiful Rhine gold, which they are sworn to protect. Then along comes this dwarf. He's a Nibelung. And in Wagner's fiction, dwarves are nasty, evil creatures. This particular dwarf, Alberich, is particularly gross. He sees the ride maidens, makes a pass at them, and they outright reject him. So he's angry. So he steals the gold from the River Rhine and swears to use it for its true potential. He will forswear all love, forge a ring of power, and use it to control the world. Cut to the gods up above, and the main god, Wotan. He has finished building the gods' new palace, Valhalla. Unfortunately, he used these giants to do all the labor, and now it's time to pay up. The giants, named Fasolt and Fafner, have their own super-heavy leitmotif. Anyway, negotiations between the giants and the gods are brutal, and finally Wotan conceives of a plan. 
to steal the ring of power from that dwarf, Alberic, and give it to the giants as payment. This is what they agree on. So they travel down to Nibelheim, which is where Alberic now reigns supreme over the rest of the Nibelungs. And this is really cool. We hear something really groundbreaking, no pun intended, for Wagner's time. The sound of the dwarves mining and digging in the earth as we transition to Nibelheim. gives you an idea of where Isengard and Moria come from. Dwarves are miners down in the earth, after all. Anyway, Wotan, the god, steals the ring from Alberic, gives it to the giants for payment, along with a giant heap of gold treasure. One of the giants, Fafner, kills the other giant, runs off with the ring, which he uses to then transform himself into a dragon, and then proceeds to spend decades asleep as a dragon on top of a pile of gold, protecting it. <clears throat> Sound familiar? Anyway, we're still not even done with the first opera. You know what? I'm going to let Anna Russell take over for a bit. I'm going to let her take a crack at explaining this ring cycle to you. So he puts a terrible curse on the ring. But Wotan takes no notice. He takes the ring up and gives it to Faso. And right away, Fafner kills Fasolt <laughs> to get the ring for himself. So Wotan knows that the curse is working. <laughs> and this worries him, so he goes down to ground level to consult an old fortune teller friend of his called my friend Erda. She is a green-faced torso that pops out of the ground. <laughs> At least we think she's a torso. That's all anyone's ever seen of her. <laughs> and she says to Wotan, she says, Voike Wotan, Voike! Which means, be careful, Wotan. Be careful. <laughs> She then bears him eight daughters. <laughs> These daughters are the Valkyries, headed by Brunhilda, and they are the noisiest women. <laughs> Well, that is the 
the end of part one. The Valkyries, which she's referring to, are female figures from Norse mythology who get to decide who lives and who dies during a battle. By the way, the Valkyries are the daughters of the main god Wotan. We meet the Valkyries in the second opera, called The Valkyrie, which is referring to one Valkyrie of interest and one of the Ring Cycle's biggest stars, a character named Brunhilde. And we hear, arguably, another one of Wagner's most famous musical pieces, The Ride of the Valkyries. as Anna Russell says. In fact, I'll let her continue to explain. In part two, you find Wotan wandering about on the earth, and he has a couple of illegitimate children by a mortal, Sigmund and Sieglinda. These children become separated at birth, and Sieglinda marries a funny sort of a man called Hundig. <laughs> He also has an ash tree with a sword stuck in it growing through his living room floor. <laughs> well, one day, who should turn up but Siegmund? And he falls madly in love with Sieglinda, regardless of the fact that she's married to Hunding, which is immoral, and she's his own sister, which is illegal. <laughs> But that's the beauty of grand opera. You can do anything so long as you sing it. So we don't have time, unfortunately, to tell you the whole thing. But it involves Brunhilde betraying Wotan by trying to rescue a young man named Sigmund, 
And this would take us way down a rabbit hole of God politics that we just don't have time to get into. Anyway, Wotan banishes Brunhilde to a forever sleep, circled around a ring of fire on top of a rocky mountain. Only a person that has no fear whatsoever will be able to pass through the ring of fire to awaken her. That one person with no fear is Siegfried, the main character of the third opera. Siegfried happens to be the grandson of that god, Wotan. Through incest, by the way. It's a long story. And Siegfried is raised by that dwarf Alberic's brother who had the ring stolen from him. He's raised by Alberic's brother, this character named Mima, who raised Siegfried purposely without fear so that he can use him not to pass through the ring of fire, but to slay that giant that turned into a dragon so that Mima can become rich, steal that treasure, and have the ring of power for himself. Remember, the dragon still has the ring of power. So they forge this magic sword. And eventually, Siegfried, what he does actually is he finds Brunhilde and, you know, passes through the ring of fire. You know what? I'm just going to let Anna Russell tell it. He finds Brunhilde on the fire surrounded rock. Well, now, he's never seen a woman before, so he doesn't know what she is, but he soon finds out. <laughs> and they go in for some very competitive singing. <laughs> The type of thing, anything you can sing, I can sing loud. Terrific. I think probably she wins. Well, then they fall in love and he gives her the ring. She's his aunt, by the way. And in the last opera, The Twilight of the Gods, Siegfried, being without fear, so he's kind of naive, is tricked by evil people, one of which is Albrecht's son, Hagen. And in a great use of leitmotif, Wagner uses the same music that he used for Albrecht's ring curse for Hagen's initial greeting to Siegfried four operas later. Hello, foreshadowing. Anyway, these evil folks trick Siegfried, who is not very worldly or bright, as I mentioned. Oh, I forgot to mention, by the way, Siegfried, since he did slay the dragon, has the ring of power at this point. Anyway, he is tricked into betraying Brunhilde by falling in love due to a love potion that these evil people give him. Brunhilde, so angered by this betrayal and convinced that Siegfried is evil and has tricked her, plots with these nasty people in the fourth opera to stab Siegfried in the back. Siegfried is killed but not before remembering that he was indeed in love with Brunhilde. Ah, oh, boy. Anyway, it all results in this great piece of music. For those of you who are fans of John Borman's 1981 film Excalibur, you'll recognize the music of Siegfried's Funeral March.
after Siegfried's death, everyone fights and dies, except for Brunhilde, who decides to burn it all down, including herself, and rides into Siegfried's funeral pyre, setting herself and the world on fire. The Rhine River overflows, the Rhine Maidens recover the Rhine Gold from the ashes of the funeral pyre, putting us right back to where we started 20 hours ago, in the middle of a freaking river. Valhalla burns, the curtain falls, and we all have a stiff drink. Whew. And throughout all of that, and trust me, I left out a ton of stuff, we have so many leitmotifs. One for Wotan and his spear, one for the sword, Notung, one for Siegfried's horn. Yes, he has a horn, just like Boromir's horn from Fellowship of the Ring. One for Valhalla, etc. The list goes on and on and on. We heard just a few in this episode, but the point is clear. This grandiose story, this epic, filled with leitmotifs, provides a perfect roadmap for film music, especially when it underscores drama, fantasy, supernatural epics, and spectacle in general. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Wabbitwikes. Kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit? Yo-ho-ho, Almighty warrior of great fighting stock, might I inquire to ask if... What's up, Doc? And now, my friends, for the unsavory part about Richard Wagner. Yes, he was a genius. Yes, his influence is felt in all of our favorite film scores. When you hear a theme for a character on screen, you can thank Wagner. But I have to get into why Wagner was, and is, so controversial. Wagner was, by multiple accounts, including his own, an egotistical, thieving, womanizing, bigoted, narcissistic, racist son of a... Well, let's just say, as an artist, he was a genius. As a person, not so much. And I make it a point never to go negative on this show. For one thing, he owed everybody money because of his reckless borrowing from and ultimate stiffing of not just creditors, but friends, family, and his fans. He shamelessly borrowed money from anyone, and he spent it lavishly on himself, without apology, living way above his means. And when the money ran out, he vanished and moved to a different city. There's an account where he and his wife and his dog escaped from Riga, barely making it with their lives. Secondly, he cheated on his wife again and again and was a known womanizer. Third, he was so narcissistic that there actually exists an account from a friend of his that attended a Wagner dinner party at one point that says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing from memory here, so forgive me, but Wagner had a large group over at his home for a party at one point, and the guests were all talking amongst themselves, happily having a great time. And at one point, Wagner realized that he wasn't the center of the party. He wasn't the center of attention. No one was engaging him. No one was paying attention to him. So he just angrily screamed out loud so that everyone would turn to look at him. Ah! Everyone stops, turns to look at him. 
truly a megalomaniac. But all of that, that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is this. Wagner was a raging anti-Semite. He went on and on negatively about people of Jewish heritage, even to the point of publishing an article about the dangers of, quote, Jewishness in music, end quote. Now, according to Dr. Robert Greenberg, a small amount of anti-Semitism was, unfortunately, a common flaw in 19th century Europe. Germany, like Italy, was struggling for a national identity. So, of course, in true nationalistic style, people often scapegoated their xenophobia on immigrants or people of other backgrounds, and that in and of itself is awful enough. So, yeah, you could reflexively argue that Wagner was a product of his time. But no, Wagner took it to a whole new level. By all accounts, he was a despicable, horrible man. And yet, people loved Wagner. No, in cases, many cases, they worshipped Wagner. There's a fascinating documentary about Wagner called Wagner's Jews. You can find it on iTunes if you're interested. And in it, historians give many accounts of affluent, artistically-minded members of the cultural elite, the musical and artistic community, who were obsessed with Wagner's music. And many of them were Jewish. Wagner's racism seemed to suffer from that horrible exception-to-the-rule racism, where he would say something terrible and then turn to one of his many fans or creditors that were Jewish and say, not you, though. You're, you're different. His admirers just put up with it. It wasn't a secret. He was obviously horrible. But that's how magical people found his art to be. By the way, fascinating side note that I said I would get to later. Among Wagner's biggest fans, and probably historically the most important fan, was none other than His Royal Highness, King Ludwig II of Bavaria. Why? Because Ludwig was a teenager, a dreamer, a lover of the arts. His day job was to wage war on Prussia or the French, or to marry and produce an heir. I see under tremendous pressure to do this, which was at total odds with his homosexuality, which, by the way, he was forced to hide, and some historians even believe was possibly the reason behind his murder at a young age, which is a whole other sad story and podcast. Anyway, Ludwig wanted to support the arts, to support beauty. He loved architecture, for example. He spent his time as king building some of the most famous castles in Germany, which are still there today such as the famous Neuschwanstein Castle in Bavaria, which was replicated to become Sleeping Beauty's castle at Disneyland. And finally, Ludwig was totally enthralled with the work of Wagner. So, he was his biggest bankroller. But wait, wait, wait! Wagner was such a jerk, though, right? To Ludwig, and many people like him, Wagner was creating stories and music that the world had never heard before. You have to remember, this is before mass media, before Twitter. This is before people could basically say horrible, horrible things every single day. His music had a much bigger amplifier than he did. People were swept away by Wagner's music and his stories. Knights and dragons and magic and swords. And oh my goodness, that music. That music that haunts our dreams. That is so achingly beautiful, so romantic, so powerful. To Ludwig, Wagner was George Lucas and Tolkien, Gene Roddenberry, J.R.R. Martin, Stan Lee, Gary Gygax, 
as well as being John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, and Hans Zimmer all rolled into one person. So Ludwig bankrolled him, which is how Wagner was able to pull off his ring cycle and other works. He had royal help. So the big question that you may be asking yourself, one that many people have asked over decades and decades, is how do you separate Wagner's horrible personality from the undeniable glory and achievement of his music? Music that we can clearly trace to film music that we enjoy today. In other words, how do you separate the artist from the art? This seems to be a question that keeps coming up in our lives. And there is a case to be made for making that separation. I suppose that it's different for everyone. And I don't know that it's really my place to weigh in one way or another, other than to just lay out the things that I know and stress that research and acknowledgement of the artist is, I think, important. And I don't think I can responsibly do a podcast on Wagner and the glory of his music and his stories without mentioning his personal demons. But his art is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's imaginative. And Western music is forever in its debt. So are film scores. And there's just no getting around that. This is a common struggle that I'm talking about with Wagner, and it's what makes him so controversial. In the documentary that I mentioned, Wagner's Jews, the story of the Tel Aviv Symphony Orchestra's attempt to stage Wagner's ring cycle is chronicled, as the musicians and the symphony argue that Wagner is an undeniable piece of music history. One musician even went as far as to say that studying music and ignoring Wagner is like trying to be a professional violinist with one arm. But critics of this move, bringing Wagner to the Tel Aviv Symphony, cried foul, and for good reason. You see, another German leader, years after Wagner's death, appropriated Wagner's music and his anti-Semitism during World War II. That's right. Adolf Hitler was a huge fan of Wagner, and critics could not stand by and have that same music playing out of the Tel Aviv Symphony. Who can blame them? Now, did Wagner commit murder? Can Wagner be blamed for the atrocities of a madman decades after his death? No, of course not. But it's proof that dangerous ideas like Wagner's anti-Semitism, when amplified, do an incredible amount of damage. So what's the right answer? I don't know. But Wagner's place in history is undeniable. I offer us a new hope. Wagner's music was also appropriated by composers who took his techniques and gave them a new home in the golden age of cinema. And this all began in the 1930s, the same time as Hitler's campaign of terror in Europe. Wagner's beautiful art lent itself perfectly to the silver screen and stories that carried many people throughout the world through the atrocities of World War II. Leitmotifs soared in classic Hollywood, the orchestra heaved and hoed as characters gave us tremendous drama, action, even comedy at the cinema. And the composers who borrowed from Wagner, who made his art their own, who made it accessible to generations of audiences going to the movies, even to this day, they were Max Steiner, Adolf Deutsch, Franz Waxman, Eric Korngold, and more. All of them were Jewish. And it's through them and their art that we enjoy this musical legacy in the form of film music, even today. Thank you. Thank you.